if you had known me at the time of my recovery and given me a bunch of tools, I would have been a straight A student and I would not have recovered. I needed somebody who was going to hold still with me for a very long time and help me grieve. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Hello, and welcome to the Seasoned RD Podcast, where today we have a conversation with Dr. Beth McGilley. I could go on and on about her bio. Hers is especially short in the show notes, and I think that just speaks to her humbleness. Actually, I know that, because when I've introduced her at conferences in the past, there was so much, and she had asked me to keep it short. That just demonstrates that it's not the number of words or the books or everything that you've done. It's just her humbleness and uh, it's intentionally short now. Anyways, the amount of work she's done in the field has taught me beyond words. I just connect with her so much about her approach and not because I studied it, but because I felt it. She talks about the alphabet soup of modalities, CBT, DBT, ACT, IFS, all of that, and reflects back on her own lived experience with her eating disorder. She said, if you'd given me a bunch of tools with like all of these things we just talked about, I would have been a straight A student and I would not have recovered. I needed someone who was going to hold still with me for a very long time and help me grieve. And I'm also struck by her beginnings in the field and if feeling fat, dumb, and ugly helped us bring this clinician, Beth McGilley, to us. And if you've ever felt that way, tap into your own power. She says we need the newer clinicians of the world and kind of like the Abbeys of the world who are coming up in the field. I learned that I am in the autumn of my chickdom. So listen in for what that is. What this podcast is and is not, it is that we bring medical nutrition and therapy professionals who share their passions, and that's to pique your interest in available modalities in this field of eating disorders and to inform and educate. What it is not is a substitute for professional training and supervision required to specialize in the treatment of eating disorders, or nor is it a substitute for medical or psychological nutritional advice from a professional or sp- specialist. So enjoy your our conversation with Dr. Beth McGilley. We are so happy to have you, Beth McGilley, on this Seasoned RD podcast. I'm delighted to be here. I'm so honored that you guys asked me. And just, I know that none of our listeners could hear, but just prior to when uh, we hit record, you were talking about hanging out with Sandra Kromberg and Carolyn Costin. I'm like, wow, this is this is where how I want to live my life. I want to hang out like with with the cool girls. So we, we're excited to learn from you today, but we will just kind of ease you into things with some icebreakers. My first one for you is mountains or beach. Oh, 
Well, mountains have been my best teachers. Absolutely. And we could spend the whole time talking about that. My dog is named after Wheeler Mountain because we rescued a man who was struck by lightning at the top of Wheeler Mountain. It's the highest mountain in New Mexico. So we're basically at 14,000 feet in the middle of September when there's nobody there. And he was struck by lightning and nearly killed. And my husband and I rescued him. And it was a very, very, very spiritually informed experience. So mountains. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I can understand why mountains then. My second one for you, breakfast or dinner? Breakfast for dinner. <laughs> we get we get that a lot. Do you have a breakfast for dinner of choice? Well, okay. So my latest culinary extension to my kitchen is a Blackstone. We have it at our lake house. We call it the Bam Bam. There's a long story behind it. We are having so much fun cooking breakfast on this Blackstone. We've got French toast and pancakes and sausage and bacon and eggs. Now we figured out how to make omelets on it. So yeah, we're like real cooks. We're having a blast with it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. All right. And the last icebreaker, audiobook or paper book? Oh, paper. You got, I have my paw prints all over it. I can't, you know, my attention span, I think probably because we work so much online now, mm-hmm. but I am old school. I write in the margins. I fold down the pages, mm-hmm. get underlined. Yeah. Grad school never left me in that regard. I need it in, in the palm of my hands. Okay. Well, I'm going to take you back to grad school. Some of our listeners are in that position right now or getting ready to take a board exam or a licensure exam. I'm bringing you back to an exam. Can you tell us what you remember about that day? Oh my gosh. Well, was it computer or paper? My first graduate school exam? Yeah. With the, um, I think it would be a licensure exam. Or oh my gosh. Yes. Like board exam. Mm-hmm. Yes. I remember it distinctly. Here's something to never do before you take a licensure exam. And that's called taking a medicine, even over the counter you've never taken before. I had a cold and I took, I can't tell you what it was, some kind of cold medicine, the non-drowsy formula. Let me tell you, I, I, I'm sure I beat a path on the hallway of Holiday Inn in Topeka, Kansas. I was up all night. I used every last piece of change in the, in the, um, you know, the machine where you get the candy and stuff out. Like I was just a crazed animal. So I distinctly remember my licensure exam. I also have massive test anxiety. So I spent a good year studying for it. Oh, oh yeah. So that, that, see, that brings the human part into it of that anxiety we so many of us experience that with tests and then a word to the wise don't take any medications that you haven't done before even if it says whatever it says on the label yeah practice it first yeah Yeah. be kind you prepare you know absolutely prepare at least for the phd licensure exam it was really kansas at the time had one of the highest required passing rates So it was a big hurdle. I did spend a lot of time studying for it. And, you know, that was a beginner's error, not, you Mm. know, thinking I was taking good care of myself. But so to all you test takers, do your homework and then take really good care of yourself the night before. Mm. If you had known me at the time of my recovery and giving me a bunch of tools. tools. 
I would have been a straight A student and I would not have recovered. When there was telephone booths somebody who was going to hold still with me. Phones that were attached to walls that have the dial. Yeah. This is what I love about the pioneers and that that's kind of what we came through and you've been in the field for a really long time. So what got you into the field of psychology and then into eating disorders? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's a story I've told before, but my initial degree interest was in marine biology. I went to a school where I was, I was able to be fluent in French by the time I was a senior in high school. And I wanted to go work for Jacques Cousteau, you know, back in the day when you thought you could be an astronaut. And so I wanted to work for Jacques Cousteau and I left Kansas City and went to the University of San Diego. And what was in the backdrop of my life was that my mother had died my senior year of high school. So I left with a broken heart and an open mind, and I got my first chemistry test back, and that pretty much changed my major. (laughs) I Mm. suddenly realized it was not going to be my academic forte, and psychology was always an interest of mine. I come from a family where my father was a third-generation funeral director. My nephews are now the fifth. So grief and loss were a big part of my life. I also am the daughter of a mother who suffered horrifically from bipolar depression at a time when we, you know, knew very little about how to treat it. So my, you know, kind of, you know, I was, I was incubated in both the experience of profound loss every day. My dad came home and somebody who we knew and loved, you know, had lost a family member. And I also was the daughter of a mother who suffered psychiatrically and, you know, was unable to get the care she needed because it didn't really exist. Mm. It was an interesting parallel to the eating disorder field as it's evolved. But what ended up happening was, you know, the perfect storm of leaving home and being kind of disillusioned about, you know, my choices academically. And I was socially a fish out of water in San Diego. You asked mountains versus uh, water. So, Anyway, I rapidly developed anorexia nervosa in 1978, having no idea what it was, that it was a thing, that I was in the grips of a disease. All I knew was I wasn't going to go to the cafeteria and eat around these people who I didn't know. I, I mean, my anxiety was what was prominent, but I didn't understand something else was at play. So I came home the year after that and began studying psychology. And in my third year of undergraduate at KU, in my abnormal psychology textbook on the bottom left hand of the page was eating disorders and anorexia nervosa. So this is 1979. I was deep into the disease. No, yeah, 79 or 80, deep in the disease. Bulimia wasn't yet recognized and literally found myself in my textbook. Like it began to explain what to me were just kind of idiosyncrasies I had developed around my body weight and food rituals, none of which were a part of my life. I was a year-round athlete. I'd never weighed myself prior to this stage of my life. I ate hamburgers before I went to basketball practice. I mean, this was a radical departure from the person I had been. And I was literally consumed with studying because, as we all know, my brain was not functioning. So this just fed my idea, my mantra at the time is you're fat, dumb, and ugly. And anorexia really capitalized on that mantra. And I struggled mightily to do well in school because I couldn't think straight. So basically, I memorized textbooks, 
found myself in one. And that was the beginning of my, you know, my liberation was, you know, insight, as we know, is not curative, but it's essential. You know, the psychoeducation we do for our patients is so essential to our healing. I wish it was curative in and of itself, but that catapulted me into the study of eating disorders. And, you know, then I went on to get my PhD at KU specializing in eating disorders. And again, you know, I was recovering at a time where there weren't specialists. I was also in graduate school at a time where there weren't supervisors who were specialists. So, you know, I I came by a lot of what I knew early in my career through my lived experience. And although that in and of itself is certainly not sufficient, it definitely became part of what I borrowed from as a young therapist. And it's, you know, it's part of why I've been such an advocate. You know, we know that at least 30% of people in our field have lived experience. So we are them and we are there. We're in the field. So the field is damn well better do something about it. That's right. Don't we're not going anywhere. That's yeah. right. And the field has become, you know, so much more open to the concept of recovered and recovering professionals. But mm-hmm. That's how I came by, you know, I come by it honestly and passionately and devotedly. And because I didn't have specialized care, it became really, you know, just a devoted passion of mine to be the person that I needed. Mm-hmm. And I was blessed, you know, what I, what ended up helping me was, if you know anything about the Midwest, the Menninger Foundation was a flagship psychiatric institute, and they specialized in psychodynamic and family systems theory both of which helped me intensely. You know, cognitive behavioral therapy wasn't on the horizon yet as an approach, at least to eating disorders. But both of those perspectives helped me a lot with what I needed to heal psychically. But what Mm -hmm. I needed to heal from a body image and eating disorder standpoint, I really had to do on my own. Mm. And I did it by growing up in the field. You know, the field was in its infancy and I was growing and learning and healing with the field, along with the patients I had began to treat. So, so why do you think it was so taboo to open up about a lived experience? Oh, wow. Well, and I, I, I'm asking this because I know just over the years, I've been doing this kind of work for about 30. And even in groups, we weren't allowed to, to, our clients were not allowed to communicate outside of group. And now we have text messages and we have, so we have to adapt. And I don't know why those rules were there in the first place, but what, anyways. Yeah. Well, I think several things. I think there's lots of layers to it some of which you know may not land in a politically correct place for some listeners but the truth of the matter is the eating disorder field was founded predominantly by white men mm. and when i entered the field you know there was one major conference in the united states there was a pivotal moment in the field where 3 or 4 years into going to that conference a woman who is beloved to those of us older in the field by the name of susan woolley was a psychologist in cincinnati who had a beautiful program At some point, Susan stood up in the middle of this New York conference and said, why am I sitting in a sea of women and there are only men behind the podium? The field has gone through a lot of changes as well. But, you know, white men were predominantly the leaders of the field at the time, you know, and we know now certainly men do experience eating disorders at the time that would have been even more radical to admit. Mm -hmm. But I think that there were social factors 
in which women were still not viewed as equals and they certainly weren't in positions of leadership. So I think one layer is it would not have been safe. I was literally told by a leader of the Academy for Eating Disorders, young in my career, do not come out as a recovered professional. You will forever be marginalized. Mm. So I was literally told that. So that's one layer. I think another layer is, you know, going out wider is that mental health issues were still really shrouded in shame. Mm-hmm. And so there's that more oppressive. So there's that global oppression that you don't come out about any mental health issues within the field. Women were trying to find our place to deal with what we then thought was mostly a woman's problem and predominantly treated by women, but we were not in positions of leadership. And again, I'm not being critical of the white men in the field. That's just what it was. And some of those same men who were leaders early in the field have absolutely championed issues of diversity, one of whom is Craig Johnson, Mm. who we we know very well. And Craig Johnson actually hired me in 1990 from the program I was running in Wichita because of my lived experience. He was one of the few people I told, but he was invested in getting recovered professionals into his program, which was at that time laureate, which Mm. still obviously exists, but Craig's Mm -hmm. not there. So it's been an evolution. So I think it has to do with issues of power and shame. And unfortunately, those are still very much at play in our field. And and interestingly, they play out differently in your discipline. So you all might be able to speak better to me about what your experience has been about recovered professionals in the dietetics field. In the therapy field, I think we have just pushed back so hard. People like Carolyn Costin and I have been talking and just beating down those barriers and the and the closets that we've been hiding in. What I hear from my friends in the academic research world is that it is not safe. You would mm-hmm. interestingly, you would think because they're not having direct contact with patients, which is often why they say they don't want recovered or recovering people working in the field because. Our lived experience might blind us or influence and impact us as the transference and countertransference issues yeah. might be too extreme. But, you know, those issues you wouldn't think would come into play in an academic or research environment. But but the colleagues I have in that field, what they tell me is that it's it's less safe in their mm. So yeah. I, what discipline you're in might make a difference as well. It it might because we have an episode about transference and counter countertransference because dietitians aren't taught these things and we want to make sure that we have a safe place for our clients in the room and so making sure that we're not comparing or using some of that if it's not in the benefit of the client so these are things that we're not taught and so I think that that's a whole other like podcast, right? That we could talk about opening up and and sharing some of that. So that makes a lot of sense too about the why it was so taboo in lots and lots of layers. And I think now in 2022, we're dealing with um, how to do that with other people of color and size and age and ableism, so that we we, we keep pushing it forward in a better way. Find a mentor, find a supervisor who will help you stay attuned to the relationship in which that healing is happening. 
A quick interruption here. So many nuggets so far in this episode with Dr. Beth McGilley. One of the things she said is find a supervisor, find a therapist who will help you stay attuned. My supervision groups include therapists, dietitians, and I would love to have a medical provider for this next cohort. I'll be opening for January group signups starting in December. They are intentionally small and include my supervision community. The first to know about my groups are current supervisees groups or individual supervision and then the next to know about the openings will be anyone signed up for supervision freebies. These freebies are live topics with an expert designed for busy professionals once a month topics and they will answer some Q&A on their particular modality. So it's super fun. I hope you'll join and sign up. Everything's in the show notes. You've seen a lot of changes over your time. Yeah. 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 Thank goodness. You know, we were right. earlier and, um, you know, what I was saying to Abby is, you know, I, I think our field is at a tipping point in the sense that the leaders of our field are still, we're kind of in what I said earlier, kind of our swan song years. I certainly don't see myself as a leader of the field, but I have had the privilege of being there pretty much from the beginning. There's a very, very distinguished group of professionals who really were foundational. You've had several of them on, and you'll have my favorite of them all on soon in in Margot Maine. But, you know, we've brought our best. Those of us who've been working in the field for such a long time have brought our best. And I think as with anything, and as we've come to understand, I mean, think of it this way. When I started as a professional and saw my first professional as a professional patient in 1986, we had no idea there was a genetic underpinning. At that time, what was deeply guiding our work were the you know, socioeconomic factors. So the biopsychosocial theory was you know, certainly the abiding perspective, but we at that time didn't know anything really about the biology. You know, so the work of I'm blocking on her name, still killing us softly. Um, Oh, um, not the birdcage, the Hilda. No, No, not Hilda Brook. No, Hilda was certainly, you know, got the field started, but I'm thinking about the woman who really enlivened the the sociocultural pressures and did all Mm -hmm. the research on the impact of advertising, you know, and then Margot Maine wrote Body Wars. I mean, that was the world we were helping people heal in, having no idea that, you know, the genetics alone accounted for, you know, a significant part of what Cindy Bulick is credited with saying, even though she says she never said it, but, you know, that genes load the gun and culture pulls the trigger. So in my evolution as a therapist, we've gone from this is, you know, narcissistic narcissistic pursuits plus cultural pressure to strong genetic underpinnings that then enliven that, you know, that neurobiology that we now so, so much better understand. So mm-hmm. yes, we do need the Abbeys of the world who are coming up in all these disciplines. And that's the other thing we've expanded the disciplinary input to our healing. You know, we have equine therapy, we have therapy dogs, like my little wheeler, the healer, and we're understanding that it, it takes a village in ways we never understood early in my career. So there's so many questions I have for you, Beth. And I know, Abby, you have a question too. The the swan song, explain what that is. 
Well, I mean, when I'm using it, what I'm saying is that, you know, the foundational leaders, we're now in our 60s, 70s and 80s. You know, we have, you know, we've we've grown up and we've grown the field up. And in the past 20 years, what you've heard me describe as word salad, and I, I mean that respectfully, but it's it's all the acronyms, ACT and DBT and all these other they're more technique approaches. They've added in to what we built through our understanding of family systems theory, as I talked about earlier, and psychodynamic perspectives. So understanding the inner psychic experience and then adding tools to that has expanded our impact on people's recoveries. So all those techniques that are now standard in the clinical training, I'm guessing, in all these disciplines, they did not exist. You know, the older generation of the field is leaving. You know, we're entering our retirement years as these newer techniques and newer perspectives and and what you made reference to earlier, which is so essential to our field, which is bringing in not the social aspects of what contributes to an eating disorder itself necessarily, but to expand the frame to the social aspects that we're working in as professionals, understanding how privilege informs our perspectives, informs how we operate as practitioners, informs the the experience of recovery for the individual. Mm -hmm. So we're now operating with intersectionality, or we should be, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. Uh, and understanding how that impacts us first and foremost as individuals and professionals, and then all the ways in which that cascades down into being in the consultation room with our client. You know, that that perspective didn't exist. And we were, you know, if we were in the field early on, we we probably came from highly privileged places. And 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 that's that's still very true. But we are make there's inroads now to having marginal people who come through marginalized experiences and backgrounds to enter the field as professionals as well as get treatment. I mean, that's what I want understood here is that the issue of privilege and marginalization is not just an issue of our that our patients deal with. It has to do with who are who's helping them mm-hmm. right. and whether they can get into graduate school and whether they can afford to support themselves to do the work they need to do to get the training they need to do. So our field really is beginning to open itself to yeah. social aspects, not just as it impacts our clients, but as it impacts us as professionals. I hope that makes sense. What I'm it makes sense. And I think that the, the, the swan song, I'm, I'm trying to think of what that, cause I'm a, aware of the crone, mm-hmm. the sage, is that part of the same? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell I haven't had that background or I haven't been in those circles to, I really like the idea of the, I think I'm in my Crohn's stage, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which I don't like that word, Crohn. Well, but say, I like sage. Yeah, I'll give you my way of saying this. I say okay. I'm in the autumn of my chickdom. Okay, what does that mean? Tell me. Yeah, so, you know, you think about chicks, you know, they're little baby chicks. Yeah. I'm in the autumn of my chickdom. So I'm in the later years of, okay. you know, being this chick. Okay. And I say that very respectfully. So, I, I mean, I'm, you know, I marvel at what younger therapists are learning and how they can integrate that. 
into their practice. Mm-hmm. I, I can distinctly remember being at conferences like the Renfrew Conference. And I remember sitting in a workshop, sitting next to Margot Main, and we were learning EEFT, the emotional freedom technique mm-hmm. and the tapping and sitting there and we're like doing the tapping, you know, with this guy. And I'm thinking, this is magic. Like I was astounded. And that was probably 10, 15 years ago. And I was so excited about it. I read about it. I learned more about it. And that was the beginning of a bunch of techniques that were neurobiologically informed. And at that time as a therapist, I was so ripe to learn. I started going to the UCLA conference and, and, and deeply followed Dan Siegel's work mm-hmm. and how neurobiology so, so critically informs any work that a therapist does, but certainly the work of eating disorder therapists. And I was ripe and ready to learn and integrate. Yeah. Now when I'm at a conference and the latest technique comes up, I'm like, not going to happen. It's it's kind of like, I, I'm just telling you, I'm at a stage in my career where it's like, I've got what I've got. And I wish I had room and time and, and and the same kind of passion to keep learning because that's why the Abbeys and the younger generation are so necessary. Because at least for me, I'm at a point where I feel kind of I'm steeped and, you know, my tea bag is fully steeped. I've kind of gotten what I've got and I can bring that to bear in my therapy. I'm also deeply aware of my limitations. And so here's a change. You know, you, you made reference to changes around you know, now patients before weren't supposed to speak and now they text. Well, therapists weren't supposed to collaborate either. You weren't supposed to have two therapists on the same team. That was considered unethical. You did not have two therapists in the same with the same patient. Now, if you came to me, I mean, this simple example is you come to me, I'm a trauma-informed therapist, but my trauma training is 20 years old. I am trained in EMDR. I don't use it enough to feel that I'm facile and up to date with it. So if you come to me with trauma, I'm going to say to you, I have a lot to bring to you from, you know, an emotional and relational standpoint, but there are ways to treat trauma now that are body-based techniques that I'm not trained in any enough or at all. And so I'm going to refer you to a trauma, you know, body-based therapist, for example. And we'll either collaborate or you may transfer to that, to that provider that didn't exist 15 years ago in the, well, maybe it did. And, and other people were practicing that way, but I would hope that now it's, it's much more common that you have body-based therapists working with, say, say somebody who's more psychodynamically oriented, which is much more rare than it used to be. But, you know, so there's, when I say swan song years, what I'm saying is, you know, we're kind of steeped in what we know. And there is still, I'm still learning every day because the best teachers are our patients. But there are newer techniques that are being innovated every day. And they are, you know, neuroscience is informing them. And, you know, we have polyvagal theory now. I mean, there's so many, and I'd love to learn about it. I'm just not going to be able to learn it all enough to get, you know, hit the ground running and, and provide it to patients when I'm you know, beginning to cut my practice back. And I think one of the big parts of this podcast is with generational shifts, we want to, a newer generation, we want to just eat up all of your wisdom and all of your experiences and all of your education. So 
I mean, really, if there's like anything you want to tell us right now, I know that you have an emphasis in sports and then performance enhancement. Does that relate back to eating disorders for you as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because when I went to the University of San Diego, I went to play basketball. And so I am the person for whom my sport had nothing to do with my eating disorder. Nothing. Now, there were aspects of exercise that absolutely were a part of my eating disorder, but I've been very outspoken in the field about we need to be very careful about how we approach a recovering person's relationship to exercise, because first of all, there's research to support that continuing physical activity supports recovery. And for some of us, it's a huge motivator. All of that couched under medical stability. So don't, you know, don't misunderstand me on that. But, you know, here's what I would say to you, Abby, if I had to impart any wisdom about two younger people entering the field, and I really, this is coming from a very genuine but passionate place, and I'd be interested if you ask Margot Main the same question. What I see missing in the training is what has been most essential to me as a therapist, and that is learning how to source the therapeutic relationship in the service of healing. And you can, you can teach people all sorts of techniques, but if they do not know how to be wholly present and kinesthetically attuned, absolutely aware of what's happening in their patient's body and in their heart and in the relationship that you're in with them in the moment, then I think the impact of those techniques can be critically lost or certainly not as deeply sourced Mm -hmm. because those techniques don't work with everybody. Mm -hmm. And they would not, you know, I would say if you had known me at the time of my recovery and given me a bunch of tools, I would have been a straight A student and I would not have recovered. Mm -hmm. I needed somebody who was going to hold still with me for a very long time and help me grieve and help me come to know myself in a very different way than I had experienced myself up to that point. Mm -hmm. That's the part of our training that I think is getting lost in the service of techniques, which are, are intended, I think, to facilitate more rapid recovery, but I will still, and you know, the younger generation, you know, you can call me wrong because this is my perspective. I'm a feminist relational therapist, mm-hmm. and I feel like that's the greatest gift I've brought to my therapy. Yeah. Certainly various techniques and approaches have been essential, but if I couldn't, if I couldn't join my patient really almost at a soulful level, Ask Michael Barrett to be on your podcast. And mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, Teddy Bear. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the piece th- that I would get as much training and supervision as you could. In, mm. in addition to the skills you're learning, find a mentor, find a supervisor who mm-hmm. will help you stay attuned to the relationship in which that healing is happening. Is he still? He's retired, but he would not say no to you, Beth. He wouldn't. Okay. Cause I, I've, I mean, I put my hand on my heart. I know listeners can't see this, but he has a special place in my heart just from his approach. Right. Mm -hmm. So I felt like things were going to change when he left. And, but anyways, long story short, 
We, I would love to have him on as one of the pioneers. We have had Cynthia Bulick on to talk about the genetics, and that was super helpful, right? You're bringing in all of these modalities, and that's the goal of this is to help people know which way to go. As you were talking, Beth, I was trying to pull up, I teach a graduate elective course, nutrition therapy for eating disorders. And I I have a file that I have put so many things into. And I also, this is one reason I started this podcast was that when I left IADEP as the certification director, I was sad that I wasn't going to be on the forefront of learning the most current things. So we had Millie the Magician on one of our episodes too, because she keeps us informed, right, of what's new. So there's a dietitian who's teaching some trauma-informed nutrition care. Oh, nice. And it is, it's that relational, like if your client comes back, I I pulled this up just yesterday. If your client comes back and, and is doing all this, just being that A plus student, but they, they're not able to do it well, or I forget how she said it. It, it may go back to the relational piece. Like we, that may mean that you're, you were not in the room in the place that you needed to be uh, with them. Yep. Yeah. No, I think the relationship is the secret sauce. I really, really, really believe that. Now, for eating disorders, I think there's probably a lot of things that we can treat that, you know, much more practical approaches could be profoundly healing. So I'm being, you know, very specifically talking about the work that we do with eating disorder patients. And certainly the the, the essence of the relationship varies dramatically between Mm. treating a 16, you know, a 12 year old and a 60 year old. Again, you're going to have Margot Main on. And I think when you start talking about dealing with midlife eating disorders, I don't think word salad is going to be, I don't think it's going to be the main course. Uh, You know, I think midlife women as one and, you know, as a recovered person, the issues of my body image now versus what I was worried about at 21. I mean, these are, life shifting issues, you know, it's not just about how our bodies change, but that the changes are literally potentially life-threatening changes. You know, we could talk about that, but so, you know, we need therapists to have the ability to really show up and be present um, in a way that for certain other psychiatric disorders may not be nearly as necessary. Beth, I know that you are a very busy individual, but I'm like just feeling something in your future, like a swan song book where you <laughs> inter- where you interview all the other pioneers. You guys give us all your wisdom. Well, that book is actually, there's a book that is being, it's a collaboration is currently occurring about the pioneers of the field and how the field has evolved. So I'm going to tell you that's already in the wings. There's a book that I've been incubating for going on 20 years. It it should have been crowning by now, but it got derailed by the book I wrote with Margot Main and Doug Bunnell about the research practice gap. So the book that I have inside me, and this probably comes from being a funeral director's daughter, it always pained me that when we go to funerals, we hear all the things, you know, our lost loved one needed to hear when they were alive. And the parallel to that for me as a therapist is that the work that we do is solitary. You know, we're alone with our patients and we hold all of this 
you know, psychic material and soulful experience inside ourselves. And then if we do our work right, as I say, my job is to get fired. <laughs> so then our patients leave and all the good stuff happens. So my book is a book of letters to my patients. It's a book of gratitude and books kind of write themselves, in my opinion. The book I thought I was going to write was different than the book that started to write itself. So what's ended up happening is that each chapter is about kind of a dynamic or a concept, or it might be, the chapter might end up being about loss, but it's a story of loss that I learned through a patient. I tell the story of my very first gay male patient and his coming out to me in 1982. He was from the Hasidic Jewish community, and it was obviously radical for him to come out. And he taught me, you know, he said, you know, you're a therapist in training. I'm going to tell you things that you need to know. And, you know, that chapter really was about generational loss because him, his coming out and the life that wanted to live in him was going to mean no longer working in the family industry, which I resonated with because I come from a family owned business. But so the the book is a book of chapters Mm -hmm. about my mentors, the people who helped me grow up in the field. And the the lessons my patients have taught me, but I've got about seven chapters and then I haven't touched it in years. So moments like this keep tapping me on the back and reminding me that it's still there and I need to get the courage up again to write. I would so have that book. <laughs> the usually our wrap up question we've act you've actually already answered is is similar to what would you if you could bring yourself back to the beginning of your time working in eating disorders, what would you tell your yourself then that you do know now? But you already answered that in a certain way. And then this book will just be the continuation of that. Beth McGilley, thank you so much for your time here with us today on the Seasoned RD podcast. We appreciate you. Well, I deeply appreciate you both and the work that you're doing and and just feel so privileged to be a part of it. Thank you for inviting me. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com slash professionals.